Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnett.org. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? Um, I'm just, I'm glad you're here. I know it's been a tough week for for some people I know of, and I know we all come from a lot of of different uh, settings in life. I just want to point out one of the coolest things that happened this week is uh, my good friends Lori and Brian Thornley finished, finalized their adoption of Amara this week. And uh, sweet Amara, you can see her there. Brian and, and Lori are right over there. Um, I, I would love if y'all would stand. We can just recognize that. But I, I love seeing the gospel uh, played out and in fostering and adopting. So y'all are awesome. Uh, y'all, are, y'all are awesome. Thank y'all. Um, we've been in this series called Life and death, Um, looking at how to live a life that matters and why it matters. We've been challenged, I've been challenged in particular, um, thinking about my purpose here, like what would God have me do, Um, what people might say about me when I'm gone, like what's the meaning of life? It's a big question. It's tied up into uh, the answer of another big question is what happens when I die? What happens when we die? You know, if, if we die and there's no God, um, and it's just empty nothingness when we die, then the things we choose to do are going to look way different than if there is something else to come after we die. Or let's say we're, we're reincarnated when we die, like in, in Hinduism, and the good or bad things we did on earth will determine uh, the good or bad status that we'll have when we're reincarnated. If that's true, our life would look a lot different, wouldn't it? Or if what the Bible says happens when we die is true, our choices here in this life are going to be a lot different than the others. Because what you believe about death is deeply tied to the choices you make in life. And the choices you make in life reveal what you believe about death. And the Bible has two major claims about what happens when we die. Number one, there is something to come after our death. And then two, it's going to be good or bad. We don't just slip off into the void of nothingness. We're resurrected and we face a judgment from God. And based on that judgment, eternity is going to be good or bad for us. So today we're going to discuss the bad side of that. The bad news first, right? Um, Next week we're going to have all the, the goodness of heaven. But today is about the bad side of eternity, what we call hell. It's uncomfortable, right? We'd rather just ignore it or sugarcoat it or even just stop believing in it. There was a a 2020 poll survey of people who go to church at least once a month. Almost 25% of them either don't believe in hell or are not sure about it. And that's just from those of us who go to church regularly. Uh, For those who don't go to church, uh, that number is pushing 50%. And so for many people, even so many Christians... Their source for what's true about the afterlife is just pop culture, like what the books or TV shows or the movies have to say of what eternity might look like. And we end up with this cute little view of hell that is kind of just all these minor inconveniences, like, oh, hell is where I just have to keep sitting at my desk all day and listen to my boss ramble on and on and it never stops. (laughs) Or hell is where daylight savings always takes an hour of your sleep and it never gives it back. Or... Hell is where your phone is always dead and you can never find a charger. 
Or hell might be where you always see that trophy buck on the game camera, but it's never there when you get in the deer blind. Um, or maybe where opening weekend is always a week away and you never even get to hunt. Obviously, those are all dumb little things. But we get to where we really do think about those things and we ignore what hell really might be like. So if you're a Christian, even here in the Bible Belt, small town Texas, you need to know where you stand on this issue. It can't just be speculation or what someone else claims it true. It can't even be just what you grew up with. Especially in small conservative places, certain beliefs, they could be biblical and true, but the more popular they become and they're just assumed and automatic for people to believe in them, they eventually grow and morph into something that's not biblical. I would guess for most of us, we've grown so accustomed to the belief of hell that it's just an assumption for us. We can't really recall much of what the Bible has to say about it. I would guess that for you because that was true for me until the past few weeks preparing for this message. And let me just be honest with y'all. I've been on a trip. If the government is watching your search history, then my FBI agent is probably pretty concerned right now for all the, <laughs> the articles and videos I've been looking at hell lately. Because there, there's so much to it. Like even among those who do believe in hell, there's so many different views of what it's like or who goes there or what purpose it serves or how long it lasts. And then hell is so deeply tied to other important beliefs like the nature of humanity and sin and what the atonement or what Jesus accomplished on the cross or the nature of God and his mercy, his love and his justice. It's turned into a, a complete revisiting of all of these foundational things for me. And if you weren't aware, every foundational assumption we might make as Christians, it's being questioned. Not just from the outside, but, but from the inside, among Christians. We can't take anything for granted. We have to be on solid biblical ground. Amen. And that's why we have apologetics here at HCF and equipping um, to be sure, Pastor Dan does an awesome job making sure that we are on solid biblical ground on our beliefs. And th this is the first point before we even talk about hell, is that we have to be on solid biblical ground. The, the questioning of our faith from every angle, it's actually a good thing. Don't run from questions or doubts. Dive into them and see where God's truth in Scripture will lead you. Because if it's true, it'll still be true on the other side. And, and if it wasn't true, then praise God for guiding you out of that and guiding you further into the truth. God's truth can handle your doubts. Yep. So we have to be on solid biblical ground. Our, our view on anything, especially the afterlife and hell, it can't just be based on what feels good or what sounds logical or what others have told us or what this preacher in a Facebook video said. The question of what happens when we die if there's an eternity that we're going to spend somewhere, that, that's the biggest question I could possibly think of. And for the biggest question, we have to be on the most solid ground to answer it. So for me in my life and my explorations, it's the Bible. The, the revelation of God to humanity, that is the most solid rock for me to stand on. And if you're not there, if you've got questions about it, that's okay. Hear me out today. Give God a try. Um, see if he fails you. So what does the Bible have to say about hell? Um, Y'all get out your notes because we're going to refer to quite a few scriptures that we actually don't have time to turn to. 
Um, but hell in our Bibles um, is generally translated from the Greek word Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place outside of Jerusalem that basically served as a garbage dump where stuff was burned. In the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom was where child sacrifice to Molech happened. You can see more of the Valley of Hinnom in, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 3, 2 Kings 23, verse 10, and in Jeremiah 7, verse 31 and 32. Those, those all talk about the child sacrifices happening there. But then the, the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, it was then used by Jesus as a symbol of God's punishment um, and judgment on sin. We like to think of this soft Jesus who's only ever kind and loving and never offends anybody. But the truth is the majority of what the New Testament has to say about hell came from Jesus' lips. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, Jesus said, if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. If you insult someone, you can face the council. And then 5 verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. And then later on, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand if they cause you to sin, which is hyperbole, by the way. Don't do that, but, but take sin seriously. And then he says, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And then in Matthew 10, 28, he told his disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. He pronounced seven woes to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he's converted, you make him twice as much a child of Gehenna as yourselves. And you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? And there's plenty of other warnings of judgment and punishment, but those are just the times that Jesus refers to Gehenna. It was a real place that his hearers would have been familiar with, and it would bring up vivid pictures in their minds. It was a symbol for the judgment that was to come and how bad it would be for them. And there, there's lots of different views of what hell actually is and how long it lasts, and lots of them have good grounding in Scripture. I won't get to all of those here, but my word of warning to us is that we tend to downplay or sugarcoat the thought of hell. But if I hear a description of hell or a way of viewing hell that results in, in feeling a sense of relief, we've probably missed it. Or if we, if we walk away feeling comforted or, or like, oh, okay, it's, it's not as bad as I thought, that's probably not a good view of what hell is. There's a major response to the verses that talk about hell saying that Oh, the fire and torment, that's just symbolic language. But that's not a comfort. Symbolic language is used when we don't have words for how great something is beyond the symbol. Like if I describe my wife as a beautiful diamond, you don't immediately think, oh, she's less beautiful than a diamond. I use the symbol when she's greater than I have words for, which is true, by the way. Uh, so with hell, the, the symbolic language of fire and torment, it, it should give us no relief. The symbols are there to point to a greater reality we don't have words for. And I know it's uncomfortable. We don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. But it's there. Hell is real. Jesus talked openly about it. More than just those that specifically talk about Gehenna, there's, 
tons more from Jesus and elsewhere in the Bible that talk about the punishment to come after this life is over. And we need to hear it. There was a, a preacher named Shane Pruitt. He put it this way. We want doctors to be honest with us when something is wrong. We should want pastors who will do the same. So yes, something, something is wrong. Let's not run from it. Let's not get up to go to the bathroom or check our phones or chat in the foyer during this. We need to hear the, the honest bad news of the reality of hell. So here's some of the other pictures of this place of punishment in the Bible. It says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, the abyss, a fiery furnace, torment, agony, eternal fire, lake of fire, smoke of torment, punishment of eternal destruction, second death, unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, tormented day and night forever and ever. The biggest picture in, in Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11, says he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image. Makes you shudder, doesn't it? And that's the point. There, there's three purposes that I see in, in these biblical descriptions of hell. And, and number one, like, like why did God allow this to be in the Bible? What's the purpose? Number one is that it serves as a fearful warning. It's vivid and graphic, trying to show us a glimpse of how awful it'll be there so that we won't want to be there. Amen. There's an element of fear involved. Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God and receiving justice for our sins, it's a valid reason to turn to Jesus for salvation. And no, we don't just preach turn or burn all the time. Uh, but the good news of Jesus is even better news if we understand the bad news that he saves us from. Right. Sometimes it takes a stern warning of the consequences to wake someone up uh, to what they're doing. Like I think of my boys when we're in a parking lot or in a street. Caleb is usually the loose cannon who he could, he's just bound to impulsively run in any direction at any moment. Um, and if he's running into the road where a car could hit him, um, it might take yelling at him or, or grabbing him back um, to protect him from that danger. And if his motivation for stepping back and staying alive is the fear of that oncoming car, that's fine. But, but really that, that first reason for the descriptions of hell, that's for unbelievers. If you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus, the promise of God that is yours in Christ they fully, without a doubt, absolutely protect you from the fear of hell and judgment. So for believers, the, the first purpose of hell is really to serve as a reminder of how great God's love is for saving you from it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then a little bit later, verse 18, Jesus says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. So there's a spoiler alert for the, the judgment after your death. If you're in Christ, it's already done. Jesus took the judgment. All, of, all the sin that you've done, he took the guilt and the judgment of it on the cross. You're covered by his blood and his righteousness.
righteousness. You can stand in complete confidence at the judgment. Not because of how good you were, how well you followed the rules, but because of your faith in Jesus. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Lonnie Wilkes, last Sunday, he faced the quickest judgment you can possibly think of for where he would spend eternity, covered by the blood. Boom. Welcome to the presence of God. Now, as a Christian, maybe, maybe your motivation for originally submitting to Jesus was, it was the fear of hell or punishment. And that's okay. Probably a lot of us are in that boat. Or the, the opposite boat of turning to Jesus for all the blessings he promises us in heaven. Both of those motivations, they reveal a, a lack of understanding of the love of God and how great a relationship with Jesus is. But either way, God doesn't leave us there. We grow in him and learn to love and cherish Jesus above all else as we experience his love. That verse in Matthew 10, 28, that, where Jesus said um, not to fear man, but to fear God because he can throw you in hell. Well, he follows that up with saying, fear not, therefore you are, are of more value than many sparrows. Come on, amen. And in 1 John 4, 17 and 18, it says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, these, these vivid depictions of hell, they can lead unbelievers to, to fear the results of their unbelief, but God's love leads us to a loving relationship with him that, that's far beyond where fear can get us. So often we, we hear that question, how could a loving God send people to hell? And it's, it's a valid question. God is loving and merciful, right? Hell doesn't seem to line up with that. How could anyone end up there receiving eternal punishment, especially if they were at least a somewhat decent person? But this question, it's born out of a lack of understanding the magnitude of our sin. It's assuming that sin isn't really that big of a deal, like as long as we're not murdering people or something. But sin is so much bigger than that. It's an offense against an infinite God. Whatever it is, whether it's telling a white lie or gossiping or, or outright murder, it's exchanging God's commands and God's way for your own way. It's telling God, I'm better than you. Like when I tell my son something, by the way, I'm so glad I'm a parent now. If nothing else for all the sermon illustrations. Um, I know why Scott has so many of them now. Um, but when I tell my son something, um, like, no, we're not going to get out the toys right now. And he immediately ignores me and gets out the toys anyway. I feel offended. It's like he thinks so little of me to just ignore what I have to tell him. He's exchanging my desires for him and what I know is best for what he thinks is better. And how much greater is an offense against God Almighty, who's infinitely more honorable than a human father, and whose instructions are infinitely more wise than anything I could tell my son. When we sin, we're committing an infinite offense against an infinite God, no matter how small the sin. And so yes, an eternal punishment, it's a fair penalty for a temporary sin, if it's, since it's an infinite offense. And then what's more, sin doesn't just stop after the judgment. Sure, people will see the true glory of God and all his goodness, but 
people in hell will still not desire him. They'll want to escape the torment of hell for sure, but they still won't desire Jesus. C.S. Lewis uh, framed it this way. He said that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Their, their unrepentant rebellion and sin, it continues into eternity. And so the punishment continues into eternity. The descriptions of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing teeth in the Bible, it's a picture of people that are angry at their enemies. Lamentations 2.16, Psalm 35 verse 16 and 37 verse 12. And then in the New Testament, when Stephen uh, gives his speech to the Sanhedrin, they gnash their teeth at him before stoning him to death. People who end up in hell, they're gnashing their teeth, meaning they continue to hate God. And in a sense, they would rather remain in their torment and sin than to submit to God's rule. In Jesus' parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man ends up in hell and Lazarus ends up in heaven. And the rich man says in Luke 16, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So even in his agony in hell, the rich man wasn't repenting or trying to turn to Jesus. He was just asking for some relief. He didn't ask to go to heaven. He asked Lazarus to come to him. So God gives a just punishment for sin, and sin continues in hell. We should rightly fear that punishment unless we're in Christ and we grow beyond fear into a loving relationship. If you got your Bible, I, I, the main text I want us to turn to is 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. The, uh, the descriptions of hell in the Bible, they also serve another purpose. Um, and this is not quite so obvious at first. But here's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm reading in verse 5. This is the ESV. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So this sounds intense, right? Like the other ones that we've seen. But this passage was actually written to believers for the purpose of encouraging them of God's coming justice. So the second purpose of the depictions of hell in the Bible is that it's the promise of God's coming justice. How often do we see injustices and we, we think, God, why don't you do something? Or why does God allow evil to happen, right? Well, like Mark talked about earlier, we started reading in, in Habakkuk in men's Bible study. And Habakkuk asked God the same question. In chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Habakkuk says, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. 
For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. There's so much evil in the world, it makes you think the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? It could just as easily be, how could a just God allow anyone into heaven? And thankfully, God answers Habakkuk with some truth. But that's where we're left. If, if there's no hell, the law is paralyzed, destruction, violence, the wicked surrounding the righteous. Hell is God's answer to his ultimate justice in the end. He is going to do something about it. We all long for justice. Our entire society is built on maintaining some amount of justice. Something burns within us, like Habakkuk, when we see wrongs committed and, and evil people get away with it. Is God supposed to just ignore evil and suffering? Sometimes it seems like he is, but the tough truth of hell is really the encouraging promise of God's justice. We should always seek justice here on earth, but when we are wronged, when we suffer injustice, we can ultimately follow Romans 12, verse 19, to never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because we have the promise that God is going to deal with it. When evil goes unpunished, when, when they get away with it, we can rest in the knowledge of God's justice in the end. Whatever hell looks like, however it all plays out with who's there and what punishment they're receiving, we can trust that it's perfectly just and fair. Even if we struggle to understand the justice of it here and now, we know that in heaven it won't be a struggle at all. It probably won't even be in our minds, but if it is, it, it won't be a struggle to reconcile the reality of hell with God's love and God's justice. Because it'll be crystal clear that it's perfectly fulfilling God's justice as he intends it. And any thought of hell while we're in heaven, it, it will only serve as motivation to worship God for his amazing justice. Like we see in Revelation 19, verse 1 and 2. John sees the crowds in heaven, they're praising God, and they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the saints. It may not make perfect sense in our limited understanding, but God's justice enacted in hell serves as a motivation for praise in heaven. So I do need to give another warning in this thought. There's a growing mass of Christians today that they either ignore or outright deny the punitive or the punishment aspects of God and of hell. They would claim that Jesus didn't take God's wrath against sin when he died on the cross. He just displayed the greatest act of love and that motivates us or inspires us to turn to him. While that aspect is definitely true, they would say that that's all there was to the cross. Jesus didn't receive our punishment. They would say there's no active punishment in God's wrath against sin. Hell is just humans being left to the natural consequences of their own actions which is punishment enough. It's an eternity of fruitless labor and selfishness that gains you nothing. And sure, that's a bad way to spend eternity, but this is one of those views that makes you feel a little better. It softens the blow a little bit of what hell is. But it presents an empty view of what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was, and there's no true justice. If hell is just being left by ourselves with natural consequences, there is no justice. 
Like, what if we took the worst murderer in history, put him on trial, found him guilty, and then the judge said, okay, go live with all the other murderers and y'all do what you want. Like, yes, they would probably devour each other with evil, but do you think that the families and the victims would feel like justice has been served? No. Sin, it deserves not to just suffer the natural consequences, but sins deserve an active punishment, something to repay for their evil. In Romans 2, verse 5 through 8, it says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible judgment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. So to to a Christian, the tough truth of hell is really the encouraging promise of God's justice, God doing something about sin. And now finally, the the last purpose of the accounts of hell in the Bible. For those of us who who are believers, it's to spur us to action. The reality of hell should wake us up to the need to share Jesus. You can think of it in the positive sense of a desire for people to experience the joys of heaven and a right relationship with God, or in the negative sense of not wanting people to suffer the just punishment for their sins and separation from God. Either way you consider it, thinking about eternity should motivate us to evangelism. The key thing about hell is that God doesn't want anyone to go there. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus, he's telling his disciples what the judgment will be like, um, saying that God will divide everyone into the sheep and the goats. And to the goats on the left, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you catch that? prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never intended for rebellious humans. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heart. That's the whole point of the gospel. God could have just left us to our own demise, sent us all to hell for our rebellion, and he'd be perfectly just. Justice would be perfectly served. But the whole point of God creating us in the first place is his love. He longs for a loving relationship with us, with everyone. That's why he sent Jesus, to perfectly fulfill his justice and his love on the cross. He doesn't want anyone to remain separated from him and suffering punishment in hell. So may that be our heart too. Lord, give us your heart for the world. May we be patient towards people, not wanting a single one to perish, but longing for each and every person to turn to Jesus. What if that were really true of us? What if every believer truly longed in the deepest part of our hearts, longed for everyone to know Jesus? Like we're unsettled in our soul at the thought of a single person not knowing Jesus. That's what Paul had. Paul had this longing for people Uh, For his fellow Jews who who have rejected Jesus, he said in Romans 9, verse 2, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is where God's word has challenged me the most in this. 
Like I said in the beginning, what you believe about death is deeply tied to the choices you make in life. And the choices you make in life reveal what you believe about death. So what choices am I making in life? What am I chasing after? If I'm chasing a bigger house, a bigger paycheck, a more comfortable retirement, a picture-perfect family, fill in the blank, I've missed it. The only thing we should be chasing as believers is for more people to know Jesus. If your job, your house, your car, your choices of friends, how you spend your time and your money, it's not ultimately serving that purpose, we've missed it. And it's because we just assume that everyone is okay. The number one reason I hear from students of why they don't talk about Jesus or share the gospel with people is because they say everyone they know is a Christian. And at least they're being honest. Like they, they honestly think that. But for those of us who've been Christians for even a little while, we know that's not true. We know there's people all around us headed for an eternity in hell, separated from God, and we still go about business as usual. We force ourselves to ignore suffering. Like, have you ever been to a Christian concert where they have the child sponsorship programs? Uh, or the, the Sarah McLachlan commercials with the sad puppies on them? Like, what's our instant reaction in, in our flesh? It's like, change the channel or sit back in, in my seat and ignore the suffering that's being pointed out to me. Anybody else? Like, it might just be me. I'm an awful person, I guess. <laughs> but the same thing happens with the reality of hell. We force ourselves to ignore it and act like everything is okay when it's not. The reality of hell should wake us up to the need to share Jesus. So the main challenge for us today, if you're a believer, is this. Who have you talked to about Jesus lately? Who have you been praying for that they would come to know Jesus? This is a challenge for me too. I want everyone in here to take a minute and think of that one person. One person who doesn't know Jesus, and, and you can't judge their heart, but if you had to guess, you'd say they'd spend their eternity separated from God. Who is it? Is it your parents? Your son or your daughter? Your friend at school or at work? Or maybe it's the cashier at the restaurant that you go to every time? It doesn't take long to think of somebody. Keep an eternal perspective as you interact with people. It just takes some effort. That's what God calls us to. Sacrifice your time, your own desires. Sacrifice your comfort or awkwardness for the sake of sharing Jesus with someone else. I want us all to commit to that one person. Just one. Focus on them. Pray intentionally for them every day. And then look for opportunities to share with them. To steer the conversation toward Jesus. And get plugged into a real life group. Our heartbeat here at HCF is small, caring communities where we can grow together and hold each other accountable and encourage each other. It's not up to you, it's up to us. Okay, God put his spirit into all of us. So let's join the Holy Spirit together in the mission that God has for us. Real life groups, y'all challenge each other. Like, okay, who are, who are you praying for? Who's your one? Okay, last week you told us about Sam. How did this week go? Did you get any opportunities to talk to him? How can we pray for you in that? Hold each other accountable in a loving way. So hell is real. It serves as, as a fearful warning or a great reminder of how, God, how much God loves us for saving us from it. And then it serves as a promise of God's coming justice. 
And it wakes us up to the need to share Jesus with others. Before we close, I would be missing it if I didn't give everyone the opportunity to respond to the gospel. God loves you, and he doesn't want to punish you for your sins. He took them on himself as Jesus when he died on the cross. And then he rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin in you. By faith in Jesus, you can receive forgiveness and new life. Would you put your faith in Jesus today? It's it's not a magic set of words or coming down the aisle that saves you. It's surrendering to Jesus and placing your faith, your trust, your allegiance in him. So if that's you today, if, if you're here, maybe you're watching online, maybe you stumble across this video a few years down the road, would you pray with me and surrender your heart to Jesus? Let's pray. God, I know I have sin. I know that you are just. I deserve a punishment for my sin. I believe in Jesus, that he took the punishment on himself when he died on the cross. I surrender to you, Jesus. I accept your gift of forgiveness and making me right with God. My life is yours Help me to grow in you and walk in your ways. Amen. If that was you this morning, congratulations. You have new life in Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's the good news. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you're saved. So from here, I want you to talk to somebody about it. Find a Christian friend. Come find me, uh, fill out a card online and let us know. We would love to walk alongside you. But however it is, uh, talk to someone and get started in this greatest journey of your life is following Jesus, living for Jesus, okay? So now let's stand, uh, let's respond in worship this morning. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's defeated the power of hell. He's conquered death and we have new life in him. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full-service replays, visit us online at hcfburnit.org. God bless and have a great week.